Good morning, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Today we are holding a book forum on Randall O'Toole's book, Romance of the Rails, Why the Passenger Trains We Love Are Not the Transportation We Need. My name is Jason Kuznicki. I will be the moderator for this forum. I edited the book and was privileged to be one of the first people to read it. I found it a very exciting and interesting piece of history. It has charts and graphs, but it also has poetry and songs. It has heroes and villains. It has people who are very deeply convinced of one vision or another for America's transportation future. It begins way back in the 19th century and progresses all the way up to today. And if you are fascinated by trains, this is a book you will surely want to read. If you are not fascinated by trains, this book may very well do it for you. That is even apart from its specific policy prescriptions. I will now introduce our panel, and uh, then I'm going to back out of the discussion and let them talk about what they will talk about. I understand that there's also uh, slides. So uh, Randall O'Toole, as I, as I said, is a uh, Cato Institute scholar and a senior fellow who works on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. He has written numerous books, including Reforming the Forest Service, The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, The Best Laid Plans, which called for repealing numerous federal, state, and local planning laws and proposed reforms that can help solve social and environmental problems without heavy-handed government regulation. American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership. And finally, Romance of the Rails, which brings you up to date, at least on the book writing portion of his prolific career. Discussing with him today will also be Art Gazzetti, who is the Vice President for Policy for the American Public Transportation Association. He is a 30-something year veteran of public transportation at the local, state, and national levels. He is responsible for APTA's policy research agenda, policy analysis, and development. And uh, he has had a career that has been in uh, public transportation policy in one form or another for uh, the remainder of those 30-something uh, years. These include 16 years managing the New Jersey Transit Corporation and Pittsburgh's Port Authority of Allegheny County, along with two years at the New Jersey Department of Transportation. He has a political science degree from Edinburgh State University and a master's of public administration from the University of Pittsburgh. Jim Matthews is the president and CEO of the National Association of Rail Passengers. Before joining NARP, he was the executive editor of Aviation Week Intelligence Network. He served on the Amtrak Consumer Advisory Committee for six years, including two years as the uh, ACAC chairman. He's a lifelong train traveler with a deep-rooted vision for a robust national passenger train network within the United States. 
He's a voting member of the Federal Railroad Administration's Railroad Safety Advisory Committee and serves on the FRA's Hazardous Materials Working Group. He also actively represents NARP as a member of the One Rail Coalition of Freight and Passenger Stakeholders in Washington, DC. And finally, Mark Scribner is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He joined CEI in 2008, where he focuses on transportation, land use, and urban growth policy issues. He has appeared on numerous television and radio programs in outlets such as Fox Business Network, National Public Radio, and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. He has written for numerous publications, including USA Today, The Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, Forbes, and the National Review. Prior to joining CEI, Scribner worked in the, uh, in co the Congress Department at the Federal News Service. He received his undergraduate degree in economics and philosophy from George Washington University. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Well, thank you for coming. And I especially want to thank the panelists, uh, particularly Mark and Art, I mean, excuse me, Jim and Art, because uh, they were very gracious to come here, even though I suspect they probably don't agree with everything that I wrote in the book. Mark might disagree with a few things, but he probably agrees with most of it, so I don't have to thank him as generously. Um, <clears throat> I am also uh, a lifelong rail fan, uh, passenger rail fan. I rode my first train in, when I was five years old. It was the Great Northern Western Star from Grand Forks, North Dakota to Portland, Oregon. And ever since then, I've been, I think it would be fair to say, obsessively in love with trains. Uh, my first paying job was helping to restore an old Portland streetcar that got installed into the first old spaghetti factory ever built. Now there's over 40 of them, uh, but this was in downtown Portland. I also helped restore the nation's, in fact, the world's third most powerful operating steam locomotive. I've traveled hundreds of thousands of miles by rail in 10 different countries. Uh, and on one of those train trips, almost 40 years ago, I met the woman who, 32 years later, became my wife. Uh, and that's a long story. But uh, in looking at transportation, I've noted that We've made enormous transportation changes in this country uh, using a process that historians call technological replacement. We've replaced oxen and horse carts with canals, which were replaced with trains. We've replaced uh, sailing ships with steamships. Uh, for urban transportation, we've replaced horse-drawn wagons called omnibuses with horse-drawn rail cars with uh, cable-drawn rail cars with electrically powered rail cars, street cars. We've replaced steam locomotives with diesel locomotives. And while there are a few people like me who make some efforts to preserve remnants of the past, we don't have multi-billion dollar federal programs trying to maintain steam locomotion or uh, horse cars or uh, sailing ships. And yet, for some reason, we do have multi-billion dollar federal programs trying to maintain and expand urban rail transit, uh, intercity rail passenger trains, and uh, high-speed rail. So the subject of the book is, why do we do this? Is it a good idea? And if not, what should we do instead? 
And to answer those questions, I went back to almost 200 years. Uh, the book starts really in 1825, uh, but I'm going to fast forward to 1888, when the first electric streetcar was developed, uh, and the first workable electric streetcar system was developed and installed in Richmond, Virginia, by the same man who, a few years later, developed the first workable electric rapid transit system uh, using systems that are still used today on almost every railroad in the country. He also developed the first high-speed electric elevator. He deserves to be known as the Tesla of transportation. Uh, his name was Frank Sprague. Uh, he won a lot of awards during his lifetime, but he didn't earn a lot of money because, like Tesla, he wasn't as good a business person as uh, Edison was. But because of Frank Sprague, because of his elevators and rapid transit and streetcars, a kind of city evolved around the turn of the last century that has been indelibly associated in our mind with what a city should be, which is to have a downtown full of skyscrapers surrounded by low-density suburbs with people getting to the downtown jobs in streetcars and rapid transit. And to this day, I hear people say things like, well, San Antonio isn't a real city because it doesn't have a big downtown full of skyscrapers. Well, San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the United States, but apparently it's not a real city because it doesn't fit our 19th century conception of what a city should be. Well, that 19th century city idea began to dissolve in 1913, when Henry Ford developed the first moving assembly line for making automobiles, he not only was able to make automobiles so cheap that within a dozen years, half of American families had purchased one, but more important, moving assembly lines require a lot of land. The factory that Henry Ford built to build his Model A Fords was bigger than every downtown in America except for New York, and it was almost exactly the same size as the Chicago Loop, much bigger than any other downtown. So obviously, factories like that could no longer fit in downtowns, and so the jobs moved to the suburbs. We tend to think that people bought cars and moved to the suburbs. The reality is the jobs moved to the suburbs first, and then people bought, got cars and drove to those jobs. Now, it was really hard for streetcars and rapid transit to serve those suburban jobs. Fortunately, in 1927, uh, a couple of brothers named uh, William and Frank Fagel uh, developed a bus known as the Twin Coach Bus. It was the first bus that was cheaper to buy, maintain, and operate than streetcars. Within a dozen years, hundreds of streetcar companies across the country had torn out their streetcars and replaced them with Twin Coach and other buses because the streetcars were more expensive to operate. So you might have heard about the General Motors streetcar conspiracy. In fact, there was none. It was Twin Coach that convinced the streetcar companies to uh, uh, replace their streetcars with buses. Now, the book also talks a lot about another personal hero of mine, Ralph Budd. Ralph Budd was the president of several railroads. Uh, when he was the president of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, he got the idea of having high-speed diesel-powered passenger trains that he personally named the Zephyrs. And these Zephyrs went all over the Midwest, and some of them went uh, as far as the West Coast. Uh, that's Ralph Budd's 
sticking his head out the window. Uh, but Ralph Budd was an interesting guy. He, he did a lot of analysis before he made any decisions. And when he was the president of the Great Northern Railway, which was before uh, working for the Chicago Burlington and Quincy, he did an analysis and he figured out that buses were competing against his trains and local branch lines, but they weren't taking away his customers. The car was taking away his customers. Buses were cheaper to operate than his trains. So instead of trying to compete with the buses, he bought a bus company. It was a bus company working out of Hibbing, Minnesota, and uh, it was called Northland Lines. And he gave the company enough money to buy literally more than 100 other bus companies. And uh, the for a while, the two companies, the Great Northern and Northland Lines, had a similar logo with a Rocky Mountain Goat as the Great Northern's logo uh, and a moose as the Northland Lines logo. But after it expanded to be uh, coast to coast, Northland Lines picked another logo. So without Ralph Budd, we wouldn't have Greyhound. Then Ralph Budd went to work as president of the Burlington, and even as he was uh, developing uh, the Burlington Zephyrs, he also developed a Burlington bus company. And then he worked with other railroads and made another national bus company, Trailways. So Ralph Budd was essentially the godfather of the intercity bus industry. After he retired from running the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railway, he was hired, uh, asked to become the chairman of the board of the new Chicago Transit Authority. And the Chicago Transit Authority had just purchased 600 new streetcars. And he sat down and did an analysis, and he realized that uh, they couldn't afford to run those streetcars. And so he had all the streetcars scrapped. He actually had them converted into rapid transit cars and bought twin coach buses. This is what twin coach buses looked like in 1949. And so he bought hundreds of twin coach buses to replace the streetcars. So although Ralph Budd... Uh, was a real passenger fan. He ordered the Chicago, Berlin, and Quincy Railway, for example, to build the first dome car ever built. And eventually, the, the Burlington had more dome cars than any other railroad in the country. He was still a very practical man, and he realized when buses work better, let's go with buses, not trains. Now, Americans often go to Europe, and they'll ride the high-speed trains, and I'm no exception, and they'll ride the trams, and they'll ride the underground, and they'll ride uh, the conventional trains, and they'll come back to the United States and say, why isn't that we don't have a great train system like Europe's? But the reality is trains don't work that well in Europe either. Turns out the average American rides a little more than 100 miles a year on urban rail transit and intercity passenger trains, 100 miles the average European rides a little more than 600 miles a year. That's six times as much, but the difference is only 500 miles. And you can drive 500 miles in a day in your car. On average, Americans travel 15,000 miles a year by car, whereas the anti-car pro-rail policies imposed in Europe have discouraged travel so that um, Europeans only travel about 6,000 miles a year by car. So they get 500 more miles by rail, and they lose 9,000 miles by automobile. And uh, that's one of the big trade-offs you get when you decide to invest heavily 
in rail is that you don't have the money and you have to penalize people for uh, driving and you don't have the money for highways. Another trade-off is when Europe decided to run their rail system for passengers, they pushed a lot of freight onto the highways. So in the United States, we move more ton miles of freight by rail than by highway. But in Europe, they run far more by highway than by rail. And uh, only about 11% of freight goes by, by rail. Japan, it's even worse. Only about 4%, 4 to 5% of freight in Japan goes by rail. Most of it goes by, pass by, uh, by truck. Now, the thing is, if you want to save energy, it turns out you can save a little bit of energy getting somebody out of their car and onto a train. You can save a lot of energy getting a ton of freight out of a truck and onto a train. So by deciding to run their passengers or their rail system for passengers, they're actually using a lot more energy rather than saving it. You've probably also heard that the high-speed rail lines built in uh, France and other countries have taken away passengers from the airlines. The reality is that low-cost airlines in Europe are growing much faster, or air travel, because of low-cost airlines, is growing much faster than rail travel. In a typical year, uh, air travel grows at almost 5% a year. Rail travel grows at about 2% a year. And it's not taking people out of their cars. For the most part, it's taking people out of buses and putting them on, on the trains and taking away uh, from the buses, which actually are more energy efficient than the trains. Now, uh, high-speed rail has, is often praised by people, but some economists and planners from uh, Spain call it a delusion. They say people who claim it's successful have delusions of success. The problem is the countries that have built it have gone deeply into debt. Japan's national railways went $350 billion into debt, had to be rescued by the government, and that led uh, to the economic doldrums they've been having since about 1990. Meanwhile, Countries like Italy and Spain are so heavily into debt that they, too, are going to have serious financial and economic problems in the future because of it. And this paper says it's because of deliberate choices of overbuilding uh, rail systems that they don't really need. Now, personally, I'm glad to know that if we ended all subsidies to rail, we would still see some private rail lines, such as this one, the called the Rocky Mountaineer, which is, runs between Vancouver and Calgary, started running when the Canadian government stopped running a subsidized train there. Uh, this one's called the White Pass in Yukon, runs between Alaska and Canada. Uh, it gets over 400,000 passengers a year, a uh, very popular train. Uh, here's a new train. It's running in uh, Florida. It's called Brightline. I don't know if it's going to be a success or not. Right now, it's not making any money, but they might end up making money. So we don't need to subsidize rail. We'll still get some rail. We might not be able to go from New York to Los Angeles by train, but we'll still get some interesting trains. In urban areas, if we stop subsidizing the rail, if we stop subsidizing transit, we'll still have transit. There'll be private companies like Chariot, which is owned by Ford Motor Company. They are currently running private buses competing against public agencies uh, in San Francisco and, and about 10 other American cities. So if we end subsidies to transit, it doesn't mean there won't be any transit. It probably means there won't be much rail transit outside of New York, uh, but uh, we'll still have private transit. 
So that's what the book is about. There's a lot more to the book than that, but uh, the first half of the book is history, and the second half of it is policy analysis. Uh, even if you don't agree with the policies, I'm sure you'll enjoy the history. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Today, October 10th, 2018, there will be 30, 34 million boardings on public transportation around the country. You can certainly count me uh, among them. And, and, and I say that in a way uh, as a preface. Uh, my remarks are going to be mainly about passenger rail. I, I interpreted that as the primary theme today. I certainly can talk about uh, public transit as well and, and welcome uh, both of those conversations. <clears throat> my organization, the American Public Transportation Association, roots go back to 1882. Before the internal combustion engine, we're talking about the era of street-drawn or horse-drawn streetcars. Uh, and think of how many evolutions have gone, have happened since then. The evolution from horse-drawn streetcars to electric streetcars. And um, Randall, in your book, I, I hope you talk about how ubiquitous they were. They were everywhere. How much a part of daily life? I have to read to just remind me how uh, heavily the uses were, how much a part of uh, urban travel, and even the connectivity to small towns streetcars provided. It was a fabric of America in those, in those days. We transitioned then, too, uh, from streetcars to buses for a variety of reasons, uh, all private. Uh, the public transportation in those era and the members of my organization, APTA, were private members, private sector. Uh, then, of course, there was the era of investment in roads and highways and designing cities around road uh, travel primarily. That led to a huge decline in public transport, transportation uh, uh, ridership and also the transition from public to private. Again, APTA was present throughout all those transitions. Needless to say, there's a, a new transition here now. There's a, a new uh, mobility uh, option, new mobility services, many private startups. Uh, there's uh, uh, the autom automation on the horizon. Adaptation is what it's all about. I feel good about where public transportation stands as the backbone of the mobility ecosystem uh, on that. Randall, thank you for the opportunity to uh, make my case. I have not uh, yet read your new book, so my remarks will be my own independent perspective on the value and necessity of intercity passenger rail. I will read it eventually. Um, I'm going to hit uh, 10 themes and I'll highlight each theme as I, as I go along. Um, first, again, drawing a parallel, uh, not every highway can be a toll road. Similar, similarly, not every passenger rail corridor is ripe for private sector investment. Some are, some aren't. Uh, for highways, there are different models that meet different sets of conditions. Some corridors are ripe for tolling, some road pricing. Uh, but other roads uh, provided by uh, state or local governments for the good of the citizens are no less important to the communities they serve. I believe in road pricing. We should have more of it. But like most, I would not espouse the view that we should only have roads that support themselves through tolls. And I'll make the same case for, for passenger trains. Uh, the second point I'd like to highlight is 2018 has been a successful year. Uh, for higher performance passenger rail. You say, are we on the way up or the way down? 
Well, let's look at uh, some of the things that have happened this year. Uh, new passenger rail services have initiated and have been publicly embraced in Connecticut, Florida, and the Pacific Northwest. I was in uh, Miami a few weeks ago and had an opportunity to tour the new uh, Brightline service that Randall uh, profiled. <clears throat> it's clear this is designed to be more than about transportation. This is about a passenger experience. Their business model reflects more of transportation, sort of in a way, back to the, back to the future uh, in, in that respect. Um, we have a, uh, a, a draft environmental impact statement for the privately funded uh, Texas Central project uh, released in uh, uh, December 2017. This project is performing nicely. So you do have a mix of public and private. Connecticut, uh, basically a, a public funded project. Florida and Texas private, uh, all important. Uh, significant progress reported in other states, including uh, Carolina, Virginia, North Carolina, Illinois, Missouri, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nevada. And the list goes on and on of places where um, intercity rail is, is uh, causing excitement in, those, in the communities. Uh, and how about the facts on Amtrak? Uh, 2017 was a right, another record ridership year. Amtrak covered 94.8% uh, of its operating costs with ticket sales and payments from states. Uh, and debt has decreased by 64% over 10 years. So those are impressive uh, uh, stats uh, from Amtrak. Uh, third, uh, quantifying the economic and social benefits of high performance passenger rail. Uh, it's a fundamental question. Benefits and costs. Yes, well, we, could, we should talk about costs we should scrutinize, evaluate costs, but also look at the benefits. And if the benefits exceed the costs, what does that tell you for what's the best, uh, the best choice? APTA uh, has done a report on economics. Uh, and we produced what I believe to be a seminal report titled Framework for Assessing the Return on Investment of High-Speed and Intercity Rail Projects. Uh, over the years, there's been a wide disparity in how project costs and benefits are measured. This report provides a systematic methodology for measuring the costs and benefits of projects. Uh, many outside groups consulted um, uh, in the development of that report, uh, the Transportation Research Board, the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, uh, among others. Uh, I, I commend it as a tool for state and regions uh, that are considering corridor studies. My next point, the future will involve a mix of the pub, public and private sector, and I think an increasing role of the private sector. Uh, it is noteworthy that the success stories coming out around the country involve a mix of public and private funding models. Uh, I mentioned the uh, Brightline and Texas Central. Those are uh, encouraging private investors to support the development of passenger rail in other places. Um, the uh, looking to transit, we have the Denver Eagle P3 project, a commuter rail project from uh, downtown Denver to the Denver airport, uh, a public-private partnership where there is private equity in the, uh, in the model. Uh, the Maryland Purple Line light rail project will be uh, another public-private partnership model uh, for others to emulate. Uh, just think of innovative financing in other ways. Again, it's, uh, it's uh, every way to make money is good, uh, you know, uh, beyond uh, public support. Philadelphia and San Diego obtaining money through naming rights deals. 
Chicago, Denver, San Francisco, Kansas City, Washington, D.C. have obtained money uh, through, for their projects through real estate value capture. Um, could do a whole speech on that. Uh, looking overseas, um, passenger rail systems can earn up to one-third of their revenues from their real estate connected to their projects. So there are indeed new models and new models that we have to, to look at. Now, here's a fundamental point that I would assert is a, a key advantage. Um, moving more people in less space, um, we should be able to settle a large part of the discussion through mathematics alone. Population will continue to grow, particularly in economic thriving regions, adding air runways to airports, adding lane miles to our highways, in most uh, often not an option. Uh, um, and certainly uh, not the best option if it is an option at all, uh, especially when there is capacity for increased service in the rail corridors that exist. Uh, passenger rail is inherently space efficient. It can move, move more people in less space than other alternatives. That is a key advantage of passenger rail and of public transportation uh, generally. On top of that, passenger rail systems typically go to the commercial center of the urban regions, the ultimate destination of uh, of many travelers. Uh, I'm going to save a few points uh, for the discussions. Uh, I will say that there are uh, uh, commuter rail success stories, and um, I want to highlight, highlight that. They're resilient um, uh, to the uh, shifting, uh, economic, shifting mobility landscape. Commuter railroads have continued to, to grow and thrive. Uh, you know, bus service is challenged with congested streets. Yes, we do have to provide bus service that uh, uh, gets it out of the congestion, provide a higher quality of, of service there. It's essential to communities, but we can do better in providing a higher quality of service. Um, the emerging uh, mobility ecosystem, that will be, I'm sure, a topic of discussion. Let me say, finally, um, many, of you, many of you, I'm sure, would rather focus on figuring out ways to confront our challenges rather than dwelling on reasons why we should not. Uh, so I, I suggest a forum on uh, constructive conversation will be uh, a meeting on November 27th here in Washington, D.C. called Getting to a Tipping Point for High Performance Intercity Passengers Rail, where we'll devote to figuring out ways we can move the uh, uh, passenger rail system. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a precious resource uh, for Americans. Uh, we need to make it better and the future is bright, I would assert. Thank you for your time and attention. Afternoon, everyone. Uh, Randall, thank you so much for pulling this event together and for writing a, a really wonderful book. Uh, I'm gonna point out an observation that Randall made, you're exactly right. Um, the first part of the book is history, and the second part of the book is policy. And even if you disagree with the policy prescriptions, you will enjoy the first half of the book. I can attest to that. I can actually attest to the truth of both of those statements. Uh, it really, it's, it's a wonderful piece of history, and, um, and I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed having a copy that you signed for me, so thank you for that. Uh, you know, the, the book posits an interesting baseline of, of truly free market transportation system, and uses that to suggest that as a result, we no longer need passenger rail. But that baseline 
simply doesn't exist. We subsidize and regulate automotive transportation in countless ways. Just look at the Highway Trust Fund. Uh, that's needed big general fund contributions, $141 billion since 2008. And the CBO sees no end to the trust fund's growing cumulative deficits, from $21 billion in fiscal 2022 to $108 billion in fiscal 2026. And those costs expand when you consider the road network beyond the federal highways. Between 1947 and 2005, so the big post-war expansion, we spent $600 billion more on highways, roads, and streets than we raised through gasoline taxes and other so-called user fees. That's a massive transfer of general government funds to highways and roads. Now today, users pay only about half the costs to build and keep up highways, roads, and streets. And the taxpayers are picking up the other half. And let's talk about parking. UCLA professor Donald Shoup estimates that without even taking the land into account, it costs an average of $24,000 per space to build above-ground parking in 12 American cities in 2012, $34,000 for an underground space. Now, we know that most cities require several parking spaces per household, maintaining them for homes, work, stores, restaurants, churches, schools. Many cities require as much as 3.5 parking units per apartment. So these costs are passed on to us. Half the land in America's cities today is devoted to car infrastructure, and in LA, it's two-thirds. So hypothetically, though, let's, what would a transportation market operating completely free of public investment look like? So here's four key elements that you'd need to make that happen. You'd have to eliminate all gas taxes, replace them with toll lanes. Now, that would prevent scenarios where people driving on local roads end up subsidizing some state politician's favored highway expansion project that the driver himself will never use. Now, you might also have smaller and less affluent communities getting dirt roads, but that's kind of the way that wouldn't work. Congestion pricing. You let supply and demand play a part in assessing the costs assigned to driving, and that decision would take place right behind the wheel when you're making it. Now, how many people here locally in the D.C. area have paid $40 to drive on I-66? We've done that. Elimination of restrictive zoning for housing. So because transportation really is about getting people from home to work and back again, and a huge part of that is obviously where home and work can be built and whether landowners can build to the density that that market supports. You'd eliminate parking requirements. Let people choose to buy housing unbundled from the cost of providing subsidized storage for automobiles. Now, if all of those market elements were allowed to operate freely, I still firmly believe that the case for rail transportation in many markets would actually be improved, not weakened. Now, in others, yes, it might collapse. But we'd also see a lot more dirt roads replacing highways. Now, of course, no one really expects all of those changes to take place in the transportation sector. In real life, people want to have a say over what their communities look like and how they're able to move around in them, not just the parts that they personally use. I mean, there's certain things that we've just agreed that we want to pay for together so that we can have a community, a state, a nation. Do you think the folks in Florida's panhandle today are glad that we have a National Weather Service? Yeah, I think they are. We all benefit from these kinds of investments, whether it's dams, bridges, air traffic control, strong military, a CDC to fight pandemic diseases, and yes, Passenger rail is on that list. 
Passenger rail helps us achieve key national goals. Helps us enable mobility in increasingly crowded metropolitan areas. We ensure the mobility of America's booming senior population, and we ensure a base level of prosperity for our rural areas. And I'd like to talk about each of these three in turn. So first off, America is urbanizing. In 2015, about 82.7% of the total population in the United States lived in urban areas. By 2045, that number will be 89%. That doesn't mean everyone's going to move to Shaw in the center of D.C., though plenty of them will. It means people will move to Loudoun County and Fairfax County, like I did 13 years ago with my family. Policymakers are going to need to think about how to plan for this without recreating the car-dependent places that we all know, like Atlanta and Los Angeles, where people routinely spend three hours every day stuck in their car. Americans spent 6.2 billion hours stuck in traffic in 2014. Americans have lost $160 billion to highway congestion. That's going to go up to $192 billion by 2020. The average American spends 42 hours every year stuck in traffic. That's an entire work week. A study last year showed that ride-hailing services are making that worse. The fundamental strength of rail transportation, on the other hand, is efficiently moving a high volume of people over a narrow corridor, the point that Art alluded to a little bit ago. You'd need 714 cars to move the same number of people as a single eight-car train. A two-track railroad can carry as many people per hour as 16 lanes of highway, and 300 miles of railroad uses less land than a single commercial airport. Now, I'm going to take a risk here, and forgive me, I'm going to engage in math in public, uh, but the fact that trains serve 20 or, or 30 or 40 destinations on a single two-day trip really underscores how massively efficient they really are. Airlines do this kind of math all the time to examine the efficiency of their networks. I had a lot of experience in that when I was at Aviation Week. So let's look at Amtrak's Empire Builder. One train, two crews, roughly, serving 46 stations during two and a half days. That's 1,081 possible trip combinations. That's 57% more trip combinations than the most efficient airline in America can manage with a single aircraft and four crews over two days. So remember, the whole point is not to connect Chicago and Seattle or New York and Los Angeles. The idea is to connect Minot and Minneapolis or Whitefish and Winona. Minot to Minneapolis would address this urban migration we've been talking about. Whitefish to Winona, you can't do that in any other way. It's not available as a bus ride or an airplane flight. And in the winter, you don't want to brave those roads. We can do better, and Americans want us to do better. Americans have gotten so sick of the status quo in Los Angeles, car capital of the world, maybe the universe. Angelinos voted to tax themselves $120 billion to improve their transit system. Private sector is getting into the game, as we've mentioned earlier, using the power of transit-oriented development to leverage the introduction of two modern passenger rail services. Florida's Brightline, which is already running between Miami and West Palm with an extension to Orlando in the works. I took that train uh, twice now this year. It's a fantastic service, and you should go try it. Texas Central is developing the Dallas to Houston service, and the company behind Brightline is actually looking to develop a service between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. But let's talk a little bit now about ensuring the mobility of America's booming senior population. Let's face it, transportation projects are multi-decade investments. So you need to think about the population that's going to be served several decades from now, not necessarily today. Over the next 20 years, 
aging baby boomers are going to grow the senior population by 30 million. Over half of Americans, 75 years or older, have some difficulty with vision, hearing, mobility, activities related to personal care or independent living, and a quarter of those between the ages of 65 and 74 also report experiencing these types of difficulties. Now take that population in 2040. Think about 83.7 million people over the age of 65 hurtling across America's highways. If we want to ensure the freedom of movement for these seniors, ensuring that they're not shut in, ensuring that they're not cut off from opportunity, rail transportation is going to have to play an important role. And the last point I'd like to make, rail is an important tool for ensuring a base level of prosperity for our rural areas. If we want to design a successful transportation program, we need to think about the structure of the government that's enacting it. The 25 largest states account for 83% of the population, while the 25 smallest states represent 16% of the population, but they have the same representation in the Senate. By 2040, 70% of Americans are going to live in the 15 largest states. That 70% of Americans is going to have 30 senators representing them. We have to ensure that Americans living in those small population states feel connected to the rest of the United States. That's why the Rail Passengers Association, our vision statement for three years now, has been a connected America. We know we have a growing problem in maintaining transportation infrastructure for rural Americans. 19% of Americans live in rural communities, about 62 million people. A quarter of those folks are veterans. Another quarter are seniors over 65. 25% of America's total senior population lives in rural America. In flyover country, there's 1.6 million people with no car, no access to public transit, shutting them off from life's necessities, jobs, education, and most importantly, health care. Often they need to travel great distances to VA hospitals or other centers for care unavailable in their hometowns. And let's talk a little bit about flyover country. Keep in mind that flyover country is getting bigger every day. A lot of places are losing air service because operating aircraft for relatively short routes into the interior of the U.S. from the coasts or to and from destinations within the Midwest no longer makes economic sense. Anyone who thinks that the airlines stand ready to provide the answer to our long-term transportation problems should think again. There are thousands of regional jets parked prematurely today in desert storage, and most of them are going to stay there. According to Aviation Week's 2019 fleet forecast, the in-service fleet of RJs is set to decline 41% in the next decade to 1,251 planes. Cleveland, Cincinnati, I can name a long list of cities that are no longer hubs and many more communities like them. For all but the longest and the highest margin flights, the airlines are increasingly a difficult option. The existing intercity rail network is already helping to connect this rural population. It could do more. But there's 34.6 million rural residents living within the coverage areas of Amtrak and the Alaska Railroad. Now, Randall touts the growth in the private sector intercity buses. And you're not wrong on the numbers. But most of this growth is in city center to city center curbside services like Megabus or maybe the occasional college campus. It's a safer alternative for rural Americans on, on rail because they die at much higher rates than suburban and urban drivers. Rural residents drive 33% more miles than urban residents. They account for nearly half of the total number of traffic fatalities nationwide. 
So finally, I'd just like to wrap this up by noting that rail provides a key economic resource for rural communities. Access to higher education, vocational training, entrepreneurial startups are more common in rural areas that have higher access to transit, and they have a higher five-year survival rate. Passenger rail corridors are an important source of tourists, and rural communities dependent on recreation fare better than rural communities dependent on agriculture. So large communities like Denver, smaller communities like Meridian, Mississippi, they've all continued to reap the investment in transportation-related improvements many times over, multiples of four or five or even nine times over. It just plain works. It works for city dwellers, rural families, students, the elderly, and our disabled veterans. Imagine how much more we could do if we took it as seriously as just about every other country in the civilized world. Thanks. Good afternoon. Um, thank you all for being here, and thank you, Randall, for an uh, excellent book. Um, and I will say, um, unlike Art and Jim, uh, I tend to agree with Randall more than I think our main source of disagreement is. I have no nostalgia for the passenger trains that, that Randall does. Um, uh, before I get to uh, the, the core of what I want to talk about, I want to uh, respond to a couple things that Jim said. Yes, it's true. Since 2008, we've been bailing out the Highway Trust Fund. I think that's unacceptable. Uh, but it's worth noting that the Highway Trust Fund also has a mass transit account since the early 80s, and that if we were to eliminate the transit subsidies out of the Highway Trust Fund, which road users pay, uh, most of that revenue outlay and balance would be closed. Um, as for road paving uh, that uh, Jim mentioned, um, you know, if we didn't have uh, all of these subsidies, what are, you know, we're going to start unpaving roads. And we see some of that in rural communities, but uh, it's also important to note that the first national campaign to start paving our roads was led by the bicycle lobby, uh, which then morphed into AAA uh, once people were able to afford cars. Um, but now on to... Um, uh, a couple things I want to touch on that Randall discusses in his book, but I want to expand on a couple of them. Now, one of the primary justifications for transit uh, in the United States is uh, it's to serve the poor, the transit dependent. And uh, there was a study about 10 years ago that uh, Ed Glazer, Matt Kahn, and Jordan Rappaport uh, put out um, called Why Do the Poor Live in Cities? The Role of Public Transportation. And their conclusion was, well, it was the poor largely concentrated in cities uh, because of that amenity of public transportation. But how well does that amenity actually work? Um, there's a, an interesting series of studies called Access Across America put out by the University of Minnesota. Uh, and I'm going to look at data here from the 2017 Transit Accessibility Study and the 2016 Automobile Accessibility Studies, which covers the top 50 metro areas in the United States, although we're going to exclude Memphis here because of a, of a lack of general transit feed specification data um, to make that comparison. Now... Uh, when it comes to transportation, we, have, we face two budgets. One is monetary, how much are we going to pay out of pocket for this? Uh, the other is time. And there's an important concept in time budgeting, the travel in the travel time budgeting, uh, called uh, Marchetti's constant. Uh, and that is, 
throughout space, time, culture, wherever you look, and we're actually getting really interesting empirical results uh, from uh, uh, developing countries now as we're seeing uh, transportation start to motorize and move closer to where we are today. But that's that we're willing to spend about an hour, optimally, uh, traveling to and from work each day. So 30 minutes each way. Now, what does that access across America, uh, those access across America studies show? Well, uh, if you take transit, uh, uh, the average across uh, these 50 or 49 metro areas uh, of traveling for a half an hour is you can access 1.12% of jobs in that metropolitan area. Uh, if, you t if you drive, that's it's 56, uh, almost 57% of jobs in that metro area. Now, a lot of people, uh, transit advocates, point out, and I think it's fair, that uh, if you're able to sit there and not be on task driving, if you're able to sit there, enjoy yourself, do work, whatever, uh, there's some premium there. Well, so let's say, uh, how, do, how does this compare to uh, 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 transit at uh, uh, 40 minutes? Uh, 40 minutes of travel. Well, for the, for the nationwide average, you're at 2.64%. How does it compare for 50 minutes? Well, you're at about 8% of jobs in a metropolitan area that you are able to access in 50 minutes of travel on transit. How does it compare in an hour? Uh, so that's twice Mar uh, Marchetti's constant, 8.1%. Uh, and once you get to an hour, the highest are Salt Lake City at 21.2%, uh, San Francisco just under 20%, New York City just uh, about 14.5%, Milwaukee uh, beating New York, uh, New York Metro uh, at 16.5%, and here in DC we're at about 12.15%. Uh, now if you were to drive an hour uh, in the average metro area of the United States, uh, you'd be able to access uh, more jobs than actually exist in that metro area. Um, so if the goal is achieving some sort of shared prosperity through transit, um, and given that we've seen continued suburbanization of low-income Americans and we expect that trend to continue, mass transit subsidies are an incredibly ineffective way to promote that shared prosperity. Um, on passenger rail, um, I, I think uh, trains uh, are great for freight. Uh, Randall talks a lot about this. Um, but uh, I like a quote that uh, I found in an early 70s trade journal. And this was from a railroad executive shortly after uh, the Penn Central went bust, which was the largest bankruptcy in, in United States history until it was eclipsed by Enron. Um, but he said, uh, and this was after Amtrak was, was set up um, as sort of emergency legislation that everyone thought was, was going to be temporary, or most people thought was going to be temporary. And he said, Amtrak primarily serves as a sentimental excursion into the past for legislators over 50. And how, we, how Amtrak is run today, it's mainly to uh, uh, drive political support for its subsidized operations. It's not to get people where they want to go in an efficient manner, um, it's, it's to satisfy politicians, and that's why you see these, these routes, these long-distance routes that lose lots of money um, because they, they want to appease uh, their senators there. 
Um, but I do think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm watching Brightline uh, in, in Florida right now. I think that's great if, uh, if SoftBank and Grupo Mexico want to keep investing their own money uh, into that. And uh, I'm fine with them having access to private activity bonds to bring a little parity uh, in government construction versus private construction. Um, but I don't think we should be betting on pasture rail in the future. Uh, whether transit or inner city. And I think uh, a big reason is we're about to see uh, the next big uh, sort of transformation in, tra uh, in transportation technologies, and that's with automated vehicles. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty going, uh, going on here. We see billions of dollars uh, of private investment now uh, going into R&D by all the major automakers, as well as some of these Silicon Valley players, namely, namely Waymo, which is operating uh, sort of limited uh, uh, trial service outside of Phoenix right now for uh, automated taxi service. Um, but some of the, and again, this is all, it's, it's fairly speculative. These are all just looking at, um, at what could be um, but I think most of these that I'm going to kind of rattle off uh, use some fairly conservative assumptions. There was a study of Austin, of Austin back in 2014, uh, and what they found, again, assuming fairly conservative assumptions with what it would cost to, uh, to purchase, to operate and maintain uh, an automated taxi, uh, but they found that uh, taxi fares would fall by about a third. Now, that's still over about five times what the taxi fare is, but unsubsidized transit, or sorry, five times what uh, mass transit in Austin is, but unsubsidized is closer to two and a half uh, or two and a half times greater. Now, in the Netherlands, uh, back in 2016, they looked at, uh, again, using fairly conservative assumptions, uh, but they found that uh, when it comes to shared taxis, uh, that the cost per passenger kilometer uh, would, would almost certainly be below those of rail. Um, and then what I think is the most interesting, uh, and this came out a few months ago in um, the journal Transport Policy uh, by a group of Swiss researchers, but what they found is that uh, the cost per passenger kilometer of current taxis versus an AV taxi, uh, an automated vehicle taxi, we're going to fall by 85%. Um, and then in an urban setting, their findings suggest that AV taxi costs fall below conventional bus, so buses today without the extra gizmos. Um, and then in a regional settings, automated taxis become the cheapest mode of transportation available. Um, so with all that, this is a lot of uncertainty, as I said. We don't know until these things are actually going to start hitting the roads over the next few years, over the next decade. Uh, but I think, you know, real options theory can tell us some important things. And most importantly, the greater the uncertainty, the greater of uh, this, these, you know, affirm whether you're a transit agency, a government in this case, uh, of their options to invest, their, uh, their opportunity costs there. Um, so the, there's the greater incentive with that greater uncertainty uh, to keep these options open. And what that suggests is that the prudent action right now is delaying these large sunk investments uh, in, in mass transit, in inner city rail, uh, things like what we saw uh, voters defeat in Nashville earlier this year on a, on a, on a massive tax hike to pay for a uh, completely uh, out of whack uh, transit, light rail driven transit system. Um, so I'm not saying that uh, transit won't have any future um, I think uh, Manhattan, certainly, uh, rail transit is, is going to be very important for a, a long, long time to come. 
Um, but I do think that we, we shouldn't be building more of it right now under this uncertainty, uh, and that we should really be focusing on uh, returning our existing systems, which are plagued by uh, uh, decades of deferred maintenance, and focus on returning those systems to a state of good repair. Uh, I think that's the least risky option, given what we can, uh, we can potentially see in the coming years. Um, and that's what I'd recommend to any policymaker across the country, whether at the federal, state, or local level. Don't start doubling down on transportation technologies that right now are dubious at best in terms of their efficiency and uh, likely will be completely obsolete uh, in the coming years. Well, thank you very much. We now have uh, time for a question and answer session. And I also, I'd like to invite Randall to uh, respond briefly to the panelists before we begin, if, if he would like. So he is not going, to be, not going to be responding. That means it is your turn. Uh, rules for this are fairly simple. Please wait to be called on. Please wait for the microphone to arrive so that you may begin speaking into it. In that way, we can make sure that our online audience can hear your question, which I'm sure that you want. And finally, announce your name and your affiliation and make sure that your comments are in the form of a question, not a talk of your own, a question. Uh, if we have we have microphones here, we can uh, we can begin. I believe I saw your hand first. Yes. Thank you. I'm Mitzi Wertheim with the Naval Postgraduate School, and my father commuted into New York City an hour and a half each way. But when he retired, he couldn't figure out when to read the newspaper. So that was very useful time not driving himself into the city. What I'm curious about is if we didn't have public transportation and everyone was driving, you wouldn't be able to move. It's just all you have to do is to get on a highway when a lot of people are going in the same direction and it's horrible. So I'm a great despite my father's long commute, but that was a choice of where he wanted to live, I think public transportation is incredibly important. And I love taking the metro and the buses here in Washington. Well, what you say about uh, highways getting congested might be true in New York City, but in most cities, transit doesn't make enough of a difference to actually add to congestion. If, if it disappeared tomorrow, You'd notice it a little bit in Washington, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. Uh, the most you would notice in other cities, including Los Angeles, was that, hey, there's a lot less congestion because those big buses aren't st in the way anymore. Uh, and comparing buses versus rail, uh, outside of New York City, buses are going to move more people faster, cheaper, and safer than rail, and with less effects on congestion. So uh, yes, I think we're going to have transit in cities but I don't think we need to heavily subsidize it. I think it's going to be there anyway, and that transit is going to be buses. Just, uh, uh, quickly, if I could. Uh, uh, congestion was one of the points you made. You made several others, and you know, one is that uh, uh, you, know, you need that mix of options that 
can satisfy a mix of travel needs. If your, your father couldn't read the, the newspaper, he, you know, public transit provided that trip. It was a lifeline. It was a way to keep him from being stranded without options uh, kind of things. And so we're all part of a system. Public transit is, is part of that system and an important part. I'd just like to add to that, if I, kind of, if I might. Um, first of all, to, to Art's point, yes, congestion is one piece of it, but there are many others. Uh, let's, let's recognize that not everyone can drive, right? We have people in wheelchairs. We have people with cataracts. We have people who have mobility challenges. We, it, it's simply not an option. And trying to get a, a large motorized wheelchair onto a bus these days is a, is a real challenge. So, you know, one of the things that when I took over the Rail Passengers Association about four years ago, uh, one of the things that I declared was that we were going to get out of this kind of mindless flag waving, my mode's better than your mode, because um, we're not. Um, all modes have a place. All modes have a, a unique use case and a, and a best use case. And transit has to be part of the mix because I have to say the congestion is much worse in other places. It's not just New York City. If you've tried driving around Miami or West Palm Beach or uh, Dallas, uh, you name it, there are, congestion is becoming a problem in almost every major American population center. And it will get worse as the population grows. Are we saying eliminate cars? Of course not. Are we saying that all these modes have a role to play in easing that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'd just like to quickly say, uh, you know, the, the phenomenon that we see today is, is heavy subsidies for, for transit, uh, for uh, uh, interurban rail. Um, wasn't always the case. Sure, there was some cross-subsidization when you had freight companies subsidi- cross-subsidizing passenger rail, but it wasn't the government. Today, the problem is we have a situation in this country where if you look at federal, state, and local spending on surface transportation, almost 30% of that goes to mass transit, uh, which accounts for about 2% of trips in this country. So we have a huge imbalance of what we're spending and what we're actually getting out of it. So at, at what point do we say, this isn't working, we should try something else? Fortunately, I think technology rather than policy is going to drive this. Um, but uh, I, I think what we have right now is, is just not working. Hello, everyone. How are you doing today? Um, my name is Jay Arzu. I'm the Transportation and Equity Research Fellow at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. Uh, I'd like to first thank the panelists. It was a, an amazing conversation. Um, my question is about density. Um, we have more people moving into our cities, into our downtowns, and I'm just wondering, with the you know added population, how do we have the capacity in our city streets to move these people without robust ba- bus rapid transit systems or light rail systems? Thank you. A, a, a quick comment. I know last week, Randall, there was a forum here with Jarrett Walker, and that seemed to be a, a central point of discussion on that. And the, the, the point is, is not you know, necessarily what's, what people would want to do. or you know, it's, it's what you can do with the constraints of the, uh, of the geography we have. And uh, you, you know, yeah, yes, there are different kind of geospatial dynamics in different cities. But by and large, uh, the country is growing. The urban areas uh, is where a lot of economic activity is happening. We're going to have to have a, a transit there for geospatial reasons, more people with less space. And you need transit everywhere for reasons that were just alluded to, and that's uh, providing uh, uh, connectivity. To- 
Well, you asked about light rail versus buses. Uh, I don't think many people know that the term light rail does not refer to weight. It refers to capacity. Light rail vehicles actually weigh more than heavy rail vehicles. But they, light rail means light capacity or low capacity transit. Heavy rail is high capacity transit. The difference is heavy rail, which is the Washington Metro, you can run eight car trains. Light rail, you can usually only run three car trains and in some places only two car trains. And that means you can't move as many people at a time. And because they often run right in the streets, you can't run them very frequently. For safety reasons, most light rail lines are set up to only run about 20 trains an hour. And each train car can hold about 150 people, but do the math, uh, three car trains, 20 trains an hour, uh, you can, at 150 people per car, you can move about uh, 12,000 people per hour. Uh, there are buses on city streets in Portland that can move uh, 20,000 people an hour. There are bus, bus rapid transit lines in other parts of the world that are moving 30,000 people an hour, 40,000 people an hour, uh, almost competitive with the most heavily used uh, subway systems in the world. So buses are actually capable of moving more people faster at a far lower cost. Light rail right now is costing between 100 and 900 million dollars a mile. The average cost is 200 million dollars a mile. Bus rapid transit doesn't need to cost anywhere near that much and it can move more people faster uh, and more safely. I'd like to fuse a couple of the comments that were made here, uh, both by Mark and by Randall, if that's okay. Um, you know, first of all, let, let's talk a little bit about the the geospatial problem, okay? That there's a certain amount of physics that's involved. A car is gonna create congestion whether it's drive, being driven by a robot or a person. So at some point you have to address the fact that we're not gonna solve the problem by just taking the driver out of the front seat. Second of all, when we talk about costs, we have to look at, at not just the cost, but the benefits. I wanna use Phoenix as an example. Uh, that was a, a light rail program that was criticized at the time for being a boondoggle. And it was very expensive. $1.8 billion is what they spent to do this, this system. Now, in the first few years after that opened, it attracted $7.8 billion in private capital uh, within about 10% uh, of uh, either side of the right-of-way. Uh, the sales tax uh, revenues from, from businesses along the route increased 65%. So it's not about whether the train or the light rail or whatever is profitable. It's about the economic development. It's the total ROI of that investment that you have to look at, the return on investment. That is where the value of this comes from. And let's face it, it's not a question of light rail is better than buses. There are places where bus rapid transit is absolutely the best way to go. Again, based on the topography, the roadways, the existing networks. Um, but if I can point to studies uh, all around the, the country where systems have been able to generate economic returns for their communities. The operator doesn't make money, but the community as a whole does. Uh, Jim Alexander, private citizen. You mentioned real estate capture funding. How does that benefit mass transit? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, thank you. Um, when you make a transit um, uh, investment in a line or a station, the property around that station is going to increase in value. So what the value capture is a technique of saying, okay, that in increased value was 
related to the transit investment made, so the transit uh, uh, property uh, should benefit from that. So you have a way of, of taxing through tax increment financing or special assessment, that additional increment of value, uh, and that money should rightfully, I would assert, go back to the uh, transit system. Uh, big success, uh, D Denver Union Station is just one recent uh, example, but other examples in Chicago, Boston, uh, et cetera. There, there's a big problem with value capture. Uh, I agree, if you put in a high capacity transit line that you will increase the property values uh, near stations along that line. The problem is you haven't increased the property values in the urban area as a whole. All you've done is shuffled around development that would have taken place, but it might have taken place somewhere else in the urban area. Uh, there's no evidence that transit or rail transit investments is increasing the value of all the property of urban areas. And in fact, there's a study that was done by, published, uh, paid for by the Federal Transit Administration and published by the Transit Cooperative Research Program uh, that says that uh, Rail transit does not generate urban growth. All it does is it moves the, the, the development around. And so if it, all it's doing is moving the development around and then you take some of the taxes from that new development and use it to subsidize the transit, that's money that otherwise would have gone to schools and fire and police and other services that are normally funded out of those taxes. So you've essentially cut the budgets for those other programs and then they have to come back to the voters and say, oh, now we need more money because we lost money to this value capture program. And that has happened in Denver and other places. I keep hearing the scenario of the exercise talking about the tax base and stabilizing and not growing taxes. But where does the investment come from? What, do you, what are you supposed to do with your taxes if you don't continue to have growth and development. And that's the thing I keep wanting to hear everyone dance around, is that you're talking about in one sense, you're talking about taxes. You could put taxes in the schools. Well, if you don't have the economy or that business is generating more taxes, how do you build more schools? And I'm not hearing that because school development and building is solely tied to the local tax base or the state tax dollars versus transportation being, sub being balanced between federal funding, local funding, and even state funding to accomplish certain projects. So where is the value, or can you disaggregate between what local taxes do from a transportation standpoint, or the blending of federal taxes and state taxes going in for um, projects to be developed transportation-wise? Well, there's a certain kind of taxation known as tax increment financing, where uh, the government puts in some money and then uh, they generate new development and the tax revenues from that new development is used to pay for the programs that generated that development. And it has the same kind of flaw that I mentioned before. It doesn't make the urban area grow faster or the city grow faster. It just moves the development around. So you end up with less money going to schools, less money going to fire and police. Uh, in California, which invented tax increment financing in 1952, uh, uh, by 2010, something like $5.5 billion a year were being taken by these tax increment finance districts to finance often transit-oriented developments along transit lines. And the state was having to make up money that was going to the schools 
that would have gone to the schools and was being captured by these tax increment finance districts. And so uh, that great fiscal conservative, Jerry Brown, when he got elected governor, the very first thing he did was demand that the state legislature take away the authority to do this value capture taxation. And they did. Uh, every Democrat in the legislature voted to do it, and only four Republicans agreed to do it, I guess on the theory that if Jerry Brown was for it, it must be a bad thing. But uh, uh, as a result, the, the state that invented value capture uh, is no longer allowed to use it. And I think that's a good thing for the taxpayers, for the schools, and for the uh, other entities that depend on those kind of taxes. I, I think, though, I would have to gently disagree with part of what you're saying. First of all, um, it's not necessarily clear that, A, moving the development from one place to another is a bad thing in and of itself. B, I'm not sure that it's really been proven that that's development that would have taken place anyway. I can point to lots of places around the country where it was brownfield for, for decades, and then suddenly this came along to increase that. But let's set that aside for a second. I, I would agree that one of the problems with tax increment financing has, has been the transparency. And you're right, there are lots of, of jurisdictions where they've had local legislation passed to allow them to opt out of the TIF district, precisely because the money seems to be going in and they're not getting a piece of it. But that's the kind of thing you can fix with policy and, and with recasting the TIF district. Um, it, it's not a, a, a situation where you've got to just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, we're just not going to do that. Uh, the TIF districts have done a great deal of good in helping a lot of communities find the wherewithal to make investments that they really need to make and don't have a way to make otherwise. I look at Dallas as, a, as the perfect example of that. Um, they, the Dallas area rapid transit system has been able to very successfully use value capture to expand its network and without having to reach into people's pockets anew. And uh, without even – just having the plan to open the station before they've even turned the dirt has increased the real estate value in those places, and, and, and retailers are, are lining up to get into those spaces. That can't really be a bad thing. Um, hi, um, I'm Melissa Pollack, and I'm retired from the National Science Foundation. Um, I had the pleasure a couple of years ago of taking the train across country um, from Los Angeles to back to Washington, D.C., and I transferred in Chicago, and I really enjoyed it. It cost me somewhere in the $750 range. Um, I would like to do that again from Los Angeles. I'm going to be there on October 21st, and um, I would like to take the southern route this time through New Orleans. The cost is $1,543, and I'm not willing to pay that. What I find interesting is that a week later, if I took the train back on the 28th of October, the price would be like $950. Um, now, my, my, what my point, what I'm trying to make is that there might be more people who want to take that trip because it's a pleasurable experience if the cost were lower. And if the cost were lower and more people were taking it, then more money would be made. Can somebody comment on, on this price thing and, and why somebody like me, a typical person, finds that very frustrating? Well, well I, I rode Amtrak coast to coast three times last year. Um, I found the coach seats to be torturous. I found the uh, sleeping cars to be one-star hotels at five-star prices. 
I found the food to be mediocre at best. It, it would have done shame to a Denny's. Uh, I found the onboard personnel to be very friendly. Uh, I found other passengers to be friendly, but uh, it, it's not an experience I'm eager to do again, even though I used to, when I started out as a policy analyst, my exclusive form of travel was by train. I never flew across the country, but uh, I don't think I want to do it again. Uh, as far as being cheaper, well, you're going to have to increase the subsidies. The, if you want to take the route through to New Orleans, which I recommend against because it's the most boring route Amtrak has, uh, uh, the subsidy right now is $350 per passenger. You want to take the route from through New Mexico, uh, you know, the one you took uh, straight to Chicago, uh, the subsidy there is only about $200 a passenger, and the senior's a little better. I would recommend you go up to Oakland and take the route that goes through Salt Lake City and Denver. That's the best scenery Amtrak has, but it still has a subsidy of about $200 a passenger. So uh, reducing the prices means increasing the subsidies. Uh, it's possible that if we privatized it, the private operators could reduce their costs. But right now, airfares are averaging about three, 13 and a half cents per passenger mile. Amtrak fares are averaging almost 35 cents a passenger mile. Subsidies to airlines are about two cents a passenger mile. Subsidies to Amtrak are about 25 cents a passenger mile. So uh, you'd have to reduce rail cost by 75% to even get in the market with uh, the airlines. And then you still have to deal with Megabus, which is even cheaper. So let me jump in on some of that, if I might. Um, first of all, um, with Amtrak, just like with the airlines, it kind of depends on when you book. Um, if you book out for far enough, you can get a better fare. I agree, $1,500 is, is punishing for that. So I, I, recently took, uh, I recently took a trip from uh, Chicago to D.C. Uh, on the Capitol Limited. Uh, I got a bedroom with uh, my own bathroom and meals, and it was $376. So my, my point there is that it's, it's very hit or miss, and, and it can be very puzzling. Um, I, I'm going to be the last person to sit here and defend the, the pricing strategy uh, because it is very much like the, the airlines. They have buckets and it's fair management and they try to extract the maximum dollars at any given time. Um, however, uh, I do want to point out though that when we talk about the, the airline's subsidy, um, it doesn't really count uh, the true cost of the, of the subsidy that we provide to airlines. It works out to about $100 million a year for each carrier. And let me give you an example of how that works. Let's take a single flight. We're going to take this hypothetical flight from Los Angeles to Baltimore, which is kind of sort of close to what you were describing for your train trip. Um, that flight uh, interacts with 28 air traffic controllers and 11 en route traffic control centers. The median pay for an air traffic controller in this country is $124,540 a year. Now, I am not arguing that we should not do that. We have the safest and the most efficient air traffic control system on the planet. I fly in it. I operate in it as a search and rescue airman. I have nothing but admiration for it. But let's understand that 42,000 flights a day times that kind of experience, um, we are massively subsidizing the airlines. 
in a way that we're not always capturing in the official statistics. So the, the larger point here is not to say that airlines shouldn't be subsidized or that we should spend less on this. My point is that all modes benefit from being part of a larger ecosystem, and we're going to spend money on that ecosystem. There are things that we just spend money on because it makes sense to have it. Having an air traffic control system, it makes sense to have it. Um, and, and so, you know, really, uh, the rails are the same thing. Most people aren't taking that trip from Los Angeles to D.C. They're taking it from, say, uh, Lamy, New Mexico, where I just was on Sunday, by the way, uh, to, uh, say, Kansas City. Um, and these are people that are visiting family. These are people that are visiting their, their relatives. These are people that are going for, for health care. So as I said earlier, it's not about going from end to end. It's about making those trips possible for thousands and thousands of people. And that's the value of that. Is the pricing a little bit skewed? Yeah, I think it is. And I think there there's should be some policy uh, recommendations around that. Um, but the fact is that, you know, uh, we can make it better if we just pay more attention to it. Uh, and quickly, let me just say something uh, regarding what Jim just said on, on air traffic control subsidies or supposed air traffic control subsidies. Um, the airlines have embraced uh, cost-based user fees. Uh, they were trying to do this in this last Congress. Uh, but the people who opposed it and who are actually heavily subsidized under, under our current air traffic control regime are uh, is general aviation, particularly business aviation, corporate jets, uh, who get about $20 worth of service for every dollar they pay in. Um, so really where we need to cut subsidies in air traffic control, uh, who right now it's, it's mostly uh, airline passengers who are paying that, uh, is in the business aviation, the corporate jet market, not, not the airlines who have embraced cost-based user fees. We have time for one last question here in front. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dave Rubinowitz, I'm retired. Uh, Randall mentioned that in Europe, they've chosen to use rails for passengers and roads for freight. In the US, they use rails for freight and roads for passengers. Does it have to be either or? Is there any reason a freight line that's already paying for the infrastructure, has it in place and is maintaining it, couldn't also add passenger trains to, that, to their lines? Well, of course, they do, but there's a difference. Passenger trains go at different speeds from freight trains. And when you have a line that isn't heavily used, that's not a problem. But when the line gets to be used to capacity, you do have a problem. So, for example, Amtrak's Empire Builder uh, goes across North Dakota, which is the Williston Oil Basin, and there's a lot of oil trains coming out of there now. And the BNSF has done a good job of keeping Amtrak on time, but uh, the oil trains have been late. And when you think that the average American travels about 20 miles a year by Amtrak, but on the other hand, the average American uses a lot of oil, by making the oil trains late, we may be adding more cost to the average American than by giving priority to the Amtrak trains. So when, there's, when the lines tend to be get to use to capacity, then the, then the passenger trains are a problem. And most of our rail lines today are at, not most, a lot of them today are at capacity, whereas uh, as recently as 50 years ago, there were almost no lines that were at capacity. I'd like to use that question to 
address the strategic importance of the corridors we have in the country, or the rail corridors. They were developed initially for both passenger and freight service. Many now are in the ownership of the freight railroads. We do have to use them for both passenger and freight, and, and um, we can figure out ways to do that. Also, in regards to corridors, uh, some folks were here from uh, Asia last week talking about development of passenger rail. They said, you have the great uh, city pairs uh, that are distanced uh, to the you know, market distances that would be ripe for boosted passenger rail service. And you have the economic activity in those corridors that are ripe. So I, I say the corridor is the, is the key. Uh, we can use them for passenger and freight. And some of our corridors are perfect for development of further passenger rail. Okay, uh, that is about all the time that we have for questions. We would like now to invite all of you to lunch on the second floor. That is, you proceed out here, make a left, and you may take either the elevators or the uh, spiral stairs to uh, one floor up, and lunch will be held in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Restrooms are on the way to lunch, also on the second floor. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel one last time.